Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today, I'm talking to Jennifer Molador about food justice and sustainable agriculture and how those can be pursued in public policy, activism, and by changing individual diets. It's a wide-ranging talk and a lot of fun. We also talk about pursuing alternatives to academic careers. And as a native of Northern California exiled here in Texas, I almost derailed the entire conversation to talk about the Marin Agricultural Land Trust and farms in the Point Reyes National Seashore, but as you'll hear, I did pull it back at the last second. Let me read Jennifer's biography. Jennifer Molador is a senior food campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity, where she works on sustainable food and agriculture campaigns, including public and corporate policy, and individual diet shifts. Her research and analyses focus largely on meat and dairy production, food waste, and other agricultural issues. The campaigns she designs work with cities and climate action plans, school food, restaurants, grocery stores, farms, food access, government programs, and wildlife conservation. Her Twitter handle is at Jennifer Molador, which of course will also be in the show notes. But now here's my conversation with Jennifer Molador. Let me just start by um, asking you a little bit about your own journey, how you became interested in these issues um, and how this sort of took on a big role in your life. Yeah, I've always been a nature lover. I think that's probably where it starts, you know, just camping and hiking and being outdoors as a kid um, and a big love for animals, you know. I wanted to be Jane Goodall when I was little, so I, I really always cared about animals and ecosystems and the interconnection with that and, and the impact of humans um, on those ecosystems and, and the animals who depend upon them. And then I went a different way. I always wanted to be a writer and a teacher, and so I pursued that and got my doctorate and was a professor at a university for many years. And um, just through kind of... Um, personal crisis where my mom actually had a, a near fatal experience um, I needed to take care of her and that led to a career change so I became a writer for a nonprofit and I was writing passionately mostly about um, my particular interest which is wolves and coyotes and foxes and um, the issues that they're facing legally and that turned into a position with the Center for Biological Diversity leading their food campaigns, because again, the interconnections is what fascinates me between uh, human impact and the world around them through consumption. So, you know, you can look at the relationship between animals and humans in a lot of different ways. And one of the most productive is to look at our food system, not just how we farm animals. And that's sort of a pretty obvious connection people can make, but the secondary connection of how farming animals impacts wildlife. Um, even if we don't eat them, we're still impacting them by our systems of agriculture. And the worst ones that have environmental damage, of course, are the meat and dairy industry. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, one of the sort of the most interesting things about food as a as a tool for thinking, uh, one of the reasons why I use why I think a lot about it um, and do food studies myself is because it brings together so many different kinds of concerns about the environment, about mm -hmm. social justice, about non-human animals, just basically, you know, everything keeps coming back to food or you can use it to get at so many things. Yeah. You know, I've really been sort of reframing how I'm thinking about food systems, talking to different people and, and branching out 
beyond my comfort zone and my knowledge zone and trying to grow as a person and as an advocate. Um, you know, I've been describing in different ways. There's these terms that we use. Is is our food system supposed to be resilient? Because that implies that we're supposed to it's supposed to take some abuse and some beating. <laughs> right. Um to be sustainable, you know, that concept has been co-opted um, by a lot of the most disastrous industries. So what is our food system supposed to be? Ethical, humane, just. And I've really come to the conclusion that our food system is supposed to be just. That's what we need it to be. And that kind of encompasses all these different intersections that you're talking about, about concerns about human communities, um, racial justice, social justice, and different overlapping concerns, environmental concerns, and so on. Creating a coexistent food system that promotes biodiversity needs to be just to begin with, and then we can deal with all these other things. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And, uh, you know, one of the real problems uh, for people to get every people who are interested in food justice already to get everybody else kind of on board and having this conversation is so much of the food system is invisible, right? There's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I've written of as epistemic gaps, that people are missing out on big parts of the picture of how food comes to their table, of how the food system kind of functions. Um, and what I've been interested in recently is thinking about the ways in which um, COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown uh, have sort of opened up space for at least the possibility of people uh, to see some of the aspects of the food system that they're enmeshed in that might have been invisible to them beforehand. Yeah, I I think that from my end, the work I was doing, there's a sense of a spotlight on injustices that are already occurring, that have been occurring for a long time. So it wasn't anything new that was happening with COVID necessarily, right? but it's a sort of unraveling of the wool over our eyes. And one of the ways that I watched that happen that really seemed to kind of blow people's mind is learning how the meat industry treats its workers. I think that really opened people's eyes a lot. And I think it could open it more a little bit as, as we're learning more and more about how these large, particularly meat companies, right, were just cramming these quote unquote essential workers into these horrendous conditions, which they could not have personal protection equipment. They couldn't socially distance. They can't take bathroom breaks. They can't, you know, they're terrified of getting sick. They can't take time off work. They don't have health care. Um, is already the most dangerous job in the United States is the meatpacking slaughterhouse um, occupation. Such little protections for them and so much risk to life and limb. Literally, people are mutilated. People are decapitated recently. There's, there's a story in the news about one of the workers being decapitated. Just horrific. I think we've begun to know as a society some of the horrors that are happening to animals in these facilities and now we're seeing that it's been happening to wit to people, to workers as well. And there's an interconnection there between sort of the exploitation of our earth, of our people, of our animals, and so on. Happening with these mega corporations, there's only really four companies that own almost all of meat in the United States. And the monopoly is so colossal. And we saw that too with COVID. These companies forcing these workers into these horrendous conditions where so many of them got sick, I think was community spread of something like 340,000 related cases of COVID through the meat industry. Um, just kind of really mind boggling that these companies continue to turn a profit. They invoked the, they led to, kind of pressured the administration to invoke the Defense Production Act, not to make masks, 
when we needed them, but to make more meat and to export it to other countries. And on top of making a profit, while they were doing all of that, while people were being hurt and getting sick, they received the majority of the bailout funds. Yeah. So I think the sort of impact of this exploitative industry and the way that it's linked to the government as well was revealed. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And then when you combine that with uh, shortages in the shelves, sort of revealing to people how, uh, you know, if you like the word resilient, how not resilient <laughs> our food system yeah. is, you know, how not res- how not resilient to perturbations it is. And then the lines of people at, um, you know, for food banks, just stretching miles here in Texas, yeah. uh, shows how on the edge a lot of people are in their ability to get food. Um, and then at least like where I am, uh, a major issue was uh, free and reduced lunch because Mm -hmm. um the district the school district where i live um qualifies for free lunches for everyone because the uh, income rate is so low and that's a major you know source of calories it's a major meal for kids and Mm -hmm. in fact too because it's breakfast lunch and then often if they do an after school program it's breakfast lunch and you know the sort of like quasi dinner which you know would would help you skip dinner if you had to yeah Uh, and for that to be lost with kids doing homeschooling was a real concern and so uh, fortunately my district uh, you know did a lot of work to get these school buses to continue to distribute them at the places where they used to pick kids up from the uh, for the school bus but you know it really was uh, there's lots of ways I think that this kind of disruption have made people notice food not just because they started trying to bake sourdough bread or whatever Those beyond the sourdough bread, yeah. The, there's so many things to this with the school food that just illustrated overlapping issues, not just through food, but within our society as a whole. Um, one of the things, just connecting to the um, the meatpacking workers, as we were talking about, that blows my mind is right. They're they're producing our food. They're working in the fields. They're working in the meatpacking industry. They're producing our food. And these are the same people who are more likely to be food insecure. They're less likely to have access to healthy fruits and vegetables, even if they produce them or work in the fields to produce them. And they're more likely to get sick from food production. And so yeah. the connection to school food, as you're mentioning that, is those children come from the same communities too. They are dependent primarily. They're coming from marginalized communities. And many of them, as you say, that's their only meal a day. And so on the one hand, there's one thing we need to feed these kids, universal, permanent, free student meal programs, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, and certainly at least lunch, um, are so important. I can't, That's a whole nother story. I completely urge everybody to really look into universal meal program and just support it so much because it can help shift subsidies to healthier, sustainable food. It can help local food, you know, communities grow. Just it's so beneficial. But then there's this, this um, as you mentioned, this idea that we were watching children who weren't able to go to school not be able to get these one meals that they rely on for the nutrition. And it really shows us like we have to think about this holistically and regionally and locally at the same time, too, because there's some areas where, you know, that was great. In a city, you're driving around with a school bus and you're dropping off food. That's great. You're trying, you know, but there's some areas that are rural and they're not able to meet that school bus. And so in some in Tucson, for example, I'm talking to somebody in that industry and they're telling me that they were able to relax the USDA guidelines so that they could do food boxes and they're connecting it to the farmer's markets and the family could come pick up a food box at any time, not within this 10 minute window. And you get better quality food and you get better 
access to sustainable food and you have, you know, you're, you're able to pick that up. But it also really shows us just how bad the food is. You know, I picked up some of that yeah. food as well. And the food that we're feeding our children that are already marginalized, that are barely getting any nutrition, the only part of the, you know, the population that the schools have to beg for basically to get reimbursed is not good. It's not just that it's um, mostly meat. It's something like almost entirely meat-based in some way, one form or another, but it's also just highly processed. And that, you know, goes to our federal policy. And so we need to have better funding for schools and better school meal programs that comes through that funding where we can have healthier food for our children and sustainable food. You know, it's just, it's such a good opportunity to support actual farmers doing good work and feed our children who are are food insecure and address inequality and you know, it, the studies show that if you start eating more fruits and vegetables and healthy food as a young child, you're much more likely to do it as an adult. So economically, it would help us with our health system, too. And it just goes on and on. These interconnections are fascinating, but they're also kind of heartbreaking. You know, we really need sure. changes. Yeah. And, you know, just to encourage people to look into this kind of thing, it isn't just, um, you know, it's it's not just like a, a lack of funds. Like, um, you know, if only, I mean, they are seriously underfunded, terribly underfunded, but it's not like if they had money, then they could buy, um, you know, fantastic, healthy meals. It also needs to be, that needs to be a policy goal because mm-hmm. decisions are made by the FDA for what things to purchase. Right. And part of what happens, I've written about this a little bit, is that, um, you know, the FDA has a bunch of really weird mixed goals as an organization. Um, like one of its goals is to promote healthy eating. Another one of its goals is to promote uh, consumption of dairy and meat products owned <laughs> by American farmers, uh, which, you know, occasionally runs into some interesting uh, uh, tensions like, you know, uh, like a decade plus ago, if everybody remembers that stuffed crust pizza started coming out, um, you know, at Domino's and Pizza Hut and things. The reason for that is because they got federal grants. Uh, to right. think of ways to include more cheese in their pizza right. from the FDA at the same at the same time as the FDA was releasing white papers saying um, we shouldn't com- consume as much dairy as we do for health reasons. So, well, there's a, there's a justice issue there too, right? The American Medical Association said you can't force this stuff on children. Yeah. Children of color are often lactose intolerant, and, right? You know, and this is the highest wasted um, food item at schools. So. Sure. Yeah. And and it's because the FDA is seeing it as a way to kind of square that circle. Right. So they mm-hmm. want to purchase. They want milk to get purchased uh, from U.S. dairy farmers. They can purchase it in bulk and use it for things like school meals. But yeah, then, as you point out, um, first of all, there's like nutritional questions about that. But just as a recognition justice issue, um, you know, the food that is provided isn't uh nutritionally sensitive for people with lactose intolerance, but also doesn't match the kind of food they'd like to be eating at home, the kind of, um, you know, more Mm plant-based meals that uh, some ethnicities and immigrant groups uh, might be more likely to eat uh, isn't getting represented, you know, if you think about the classic food pyramid and compare it to um, actual, (laughs) uh, you know, ethnic cuisines of any variety, it tends not to line up. Are you saying that cultural diversity is not represented by burgers, pizza, corn dogs, and sloppy joes? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying we can force everyone to start eating that and we'll solve the problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So one thing I'd like – another thing that kind of comes up from COVID that I'd like you to speak about, um, if you can, uh, is I think another image that grabbed people in addition to the lines and the empty shelves and you know the tragedy of the dead people working at and sick people working at. Uh, meatpacking plants was um, wasted food. So, 
mm-hmm. you know, huge amounts of like potatoes and carrots that aren't getting purchased because grocery stores aren't able to work the logistics properly and they can't get a buyer in time and just lots and lots of food waste that was happening, which actually happens all the time. But mm-hmm. journalists were covering it be- in in this sort of like lens of the pandemic. So we started seeing those images more. And I haven't actually gotten somebody on the show yet to talk about food waste, even though I think it's a really important issue. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, because I've seen you've done some writing on that. Yeah, food waste is a really interesting issue that overlaps these concerns as well. And COVID did shine a spotlight on it. Although I think we have kind of a food panic in our society. I think that's why people were like, you know, doing the victory gardens and, um, uh, baking all this sourdough, you know, this kind of food panic. And so I think it played up on that as well, because a lot of the initial news was about, you know, things that were um, shelf stable and the toilet paper issue. And that kind of thing. It was the sort of panic induced purchasing. And so there's there's two overlapping issues. There is one, you know, the stack of potatoes that we saw that was alarming since we have so many people in the country that are food insecure, particularly children. But I think the more, for me, alarming um, part of the food supply chain that kind of came to light from that was the slaughterhouse yeah. issue where animals were being slaughtered in mass um, by the farmers, which is not usually what happens. And so I think there's a, there's a lot of farmers who are going to need a lot of therapy for a long time. I'm really serious about that because... They had to, um, rather than sort of ship their, transport the animals that they raised to slaughterhouses and have somebody else take care of that, um, they had to shoot them in the head and gas them and, you know, suffocate them. And it was brutal and it was very upsetting for farmers. And that says a lot, I think. And, you know, the reason that they had to do that was complicated because the animals were going, they couldn't get to the slaughterhouse and they're going, grown past their slaughter weight, um, wouldn't fit in the machines. So it's another whole insight about how we're producing animals. But the system breaking down at the industrial level is insightful. And I do think there is a real value to thinking about how we can be resilient communities with our food. The only thing I would say about that is that that turns into sometimes with best intentions, people saying, well, all I have to do is eat locally. Right. And that isn't true because when it comes to the environment, um, you could have a factory farm in the backyard, or you could have a producer producing any kind of food that isn't sustainably produced. So local isn't the only issue. When it comes to things like meat and dairy, for example, the, f- the food miles or the transportation um, is 4% of the, I think, carbon footprint. So it's a, just a very small portion of the toxicity, with the pesticides or with the you know, manure contamination the environmental impacts of food production are not going to be solved just by local, although local is important to being resilient. Um, we're going to have to just be smarter in a, in a holistic way. And I think we also need to be real honest about where the food waste is coming from and why. And it is complex, but it is because of standards. It is because of the machines that I was talking about, but standards in terms of cosmetic. It is in terms of standards and regulations for how we transport food and refrigerate food, how we order food. You know, this demand that we have like blueberries on supply out of season. I saw someone recently complain about their watermelon wasn't the perfect quality at Trader Joe's <laughs> in April. 
you know, it's like, well, it's not in season. And so we've come, as you said, so distant from how our food is produced that we've created a system that is not sustainable in various ways. And one of them um, is, is food waste, of course. Sure. And, you know, um, another reason people try to um, shop locally, which is, you know, laudable, is that they want to support, you know, vibrant communities. But some mm -hmm. local food options aren't actually supporting vibrant communities. You know, the uh, right. uh, I, this is something I've written about before, but companies like Walmart and other, you know, major chain grocery stores loved local becoming popular because it was a thing that they could do. You know, whereas mm -hmm. uh, some other standards are actually quite hard for them to meet, like, um, you know, paying workers very well or, <laughs> you know, fair trade, uh, you know, uh, produce. But much easier is local, uh, in, depending on where you are, uh, especially since then they could bully the local producers because they'd be the, the main buyer and they could have them grow to exactly their specifications. So just because something's loyal, uh, local doesn't necessarily mean that you are supporting some kind of vibrant, healthy, just uh, food system. Uh, right. Up. Right. around you uh, there's a real benefit to, to supporting local as you say for, for resiliency and i would support like urban agriculture urban food farms mm -hmm. so you know the community gardens and people who are trying to seek sovereignty and you know tribal food sovereignty and urban food sovereignty and all of these movements are really important and they need more support but yeah as you say in and of itself local doesn't auto you have to look a little further than that the example that i think of when I think of why local is not an automatic solution is in Northern California, as you know, the Point Reyes National Seashore, yeah. the elk there are being thirsted to death. They're being exclosed or fenced out from their native habitat and their waterways that they kind of depend on to survive. And they're being fenced out on public lands on this national seashore by private livestock operators. And the foodie world in the Bay Area here is so big. You know, I have friends that are ranchers and food producers here. Um, and it's just such a big part of our local culture, right? But at the same time, it's superseding the rights to, of native wildlife to survive into their local waterways. And so in that way, it's not sustainable. Even though yeah. we have supposed standards and we have labels and they call it sustainable, it's actually killing native wildlife, which then kills ecosystems, which has an impact on the waterway. And we're sort of just living as if there's no tomorrow, you know, and these these methods of producing food are not sustainable. Yeah. And I mean, water use is sort of a, an interesting example of waste in food through meat production because of the like sort of high intensity water use that's required for beef production. Uh, I'm resisting the temptation to turn this into a a local uh, to Northern California podcast and talk about the Point Reyes <laughs> National Seashore and why uh, some ranches uh, got grandfathered in when it became National right. Seashore Project, the Marine Agricultural Land Trust, and uh, mm -hmm. their sort of responsibility, or uh, I perceive what they ought to have as a responsibility to uh, push for, um, you know, more sustainable agricultural practices since they own the land and use it but whatever. Uh, I'll skip all that for now <laughs> and maybe have I a separate... I mean, in that situation, right, like it is not necessarily anti-farmer or anti-nature. Sure. So a lot of other places they, they could you know, do run their livestock other than the national seashore. Right. Yeah, for sure. And and there are other ways they could do it too. But so let's, let's think about that idea of this, um, of eating beef, right? Because you've written about this. Um, it seems like eating local, eating uh, organic, um, eating in-season, seasonal, um, and maybe not eating beef, right? That these are all sorts of consumer choices that you could make. 
that uh, seem sort of cool, kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of groovy, you're sort of linked, you're, you're kind of linked into things. Um, are these, you know, you've written, I think, uh, fairly persuasively that uh, eating beef or, uh, you know, supporting that agricultural system, if you want to go beyond individual personal, like dietary choices, um, is maybe has a lot more impact than people think it does when compared to some of these other things. Yeah, I, you know, grew up in dairy country and I'm from Northern California and I know about the Harris feedlot. So cows and national land and forests and wilderness areas have just been part of my background all my life, basically. And I've seen the impact myself of cows on the land and I'm quite fond of cows. So, and I have friends, as I said, who are ranchers. So it's this sort of complex thing that comes down to one point, which is hard to escape. And I think opens a conversation for how to solve this problem. But that is, we as Americans eat way too much beef than we can possibly sustain both in America and globally. We eat way too much. We eat four times the global average of beef. And it has the leading impact in terms of food print at every level, essentially, um, carbon, water, and so on, land use. And it's just for Americans, what we call the global north, which is, you know, the way of talking about Americans particularly and other parts in the West. Um, because people will often say, well, what about other places? Right here, we are the ones eating the most beef. It, we're eating right. more than is healthy for us individually, way more than sustainable for the rest of the planet. And we're eating way more than we have before. You know, it's just sort of, blossomed and I'm really interested in looking back about how the American burger and the drive-through came to be such an obsession and such a part of Americana linked in our identity that we have outsized our appetite for beef to such a destructive level, you know. And so when I say one of the best things you can do in terms of your diet is eat less beef, I think people might feel very threatened or defensive about that. But you have to understand that it's actually quite reasonable because we're eating way too much. We're eating more than we've ever been, you know, evolved to do so and more than our, our planet can handle. So, you know, we had a report, I think, a year and a half ago or so from the University of Michigan. And we worked with them on it. And that report, I don't know if you saw it, looked at different diet scenarios about how we could fight climate change for one thing, not to mention the you know biodiversity crisis that's going on, mm -hmm. another topic, but the climate change issue. And what if we did nothing with our diet? What would it look like by 2030, for example? Um, what if we cut out 50% of our meat? And we looked at these different diet scenarios to see how can we meet our climate goals? And the report found that in order to make those goals, the best diet would be, you, on average, cutting about 50% of the average person's meat and dairy consumption and specifically 90% of beef consumption overall. And that report was picked up somehow recently and just created this sort of media frenzy about <laughs> Biden's going to ban your beef, you know, which is a complete misreading of the report, which was looking at sure. hypothetical scenarios, but it was also not anything that Biden has said. I would love for Biden to come out and have yeah, right. some specific claim about climate change and, you know, 
food production and some set some goals and some standards, but he hasn't yet at all. So, and he certainly hasn't banned beef, but it's opened this interesting conversation. People are on one hand saying, you're not, you can't take my beef sort of like you can't take my guns. You know, it's like, it's, this is not, mm-hmm. this is not a thing. But on the other hand, a lot of people are saying, well, maybe we should talk about how much beef we eat and how we can eat a little less. And then I would also just point out that there are um, producers who are interested in the science of cattle grazing, for example, as an alternative to factory farms. And they are Mm -hmm. thinking like, how can we save more water? How can we protect and promote wildlife? How can we regenerate the soil? And this is real trend that's going on right now. And then the best case scenario with the best intentions those producers are going to do better if we all reduce our beef consumption as a whole substantially, because right now the majority of the beef that we're buying is from factory farms anyway. So if we eliminate that system and we scale back to something that's reasonable for our health and reasonable for the planet and our water sources and isn't, you know, draining the Colorado river dry, we scale back, then those people who choose to eat beef can choose to eat the best case scenario production and that kind of thing. But if we don't do that, if we don't move away from that factory farm system, and if we don't scale back like dramatically on beef, then those producers aren't going to make enough of a dent. And we're going to be in a real climate catastrophe in which we we're really have struggling to grow food anyway. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, yeah, as you say that it's not like there isn't a role for big ruminants to play in, biological diversity in you know the territorial united states and historically so it's it's not that animals like that can't live um on the land but rather that not that many can live in that small part of the land i guess yeah and it depends on sort of where they graze you know a lot of people talk about like marginal lands like cattle are really good at grazing on marginal lands but those lands are not marginal to the wildlife and the ecosystems who consider them habitat and so we need to think more holistically about biodiversity and intact ecosystems, not just soil. And I think we also need to kind of stop comparing cattle to bison. They're not the same. They congregate around water sources differently and they, they have a different impact on vegetation. So anyway, that's a different subject, but those are some of the, the common kind of objections. But there is there can be a place for livestock production for those who choose it. Um, but we need to scale back. We need to be a lot more reasonable and have that conversation. Yeah. And I mean, so when that study or uh, when allegedly uh, Biden was going to take away our burgers, <laughs> uh, the, the response that you saw a lot online was people buying a, a truly impressively large amount of steak or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, saying this, you know, I, I guess the come take it from my cold dead hands sort right. of idea, right? That, I'm, although, you know, hey. You may give yourself a heart attack. So it might be fairly easy to do that. But anyway, they, um, you know, they would show themselves eating like this huge amount. And there's an extent to which um, this kind of idea of consumption and increasing consumption uh, is sort of hardwired into the way that we're currently thinking about food, right? Mm-hmm. Not just in the sense of nobody can tell me to, nobody can tell me to eat less unless uh, it's in the context of making people feel bad about their bodies and you know selling diets. But that's a new thing that you can consume. Also, mm-hmm. now I can consume. Uh, diet information and diet products. Uh, And that, you know, I mean, since at least the 1950s, maximal production, you know, as much food as possible, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, row to row farming, uh, 
intensive livestock production that's sort of bigger has always been the push. So I think it's going to be a real challenge to get people on board with something <laughs> that says eat less and grow less and make less. You know, like the, the entire sort of degrowth idea with food is it sends, as you were saying, sends it into a bit of a panic. Uh, there's, you know, we're still thinking that there's a hunger yeah. right around the corner. For sure. The, the more successful message is eat better and eat differently. And the problem is that it doesn't go far enough um, to making substantial changes and there's a lot of greenwashing. But I, I think you're absolutely right. And there's kind of a parallel um, comparison in the fossil fuel industry, right? So, and, and I think they even mention it, the people who are saying don't come for my beef are saying like, oh, you're going to make us drive like energy efficient cars and you're going to, you know, have a healthy, sustainable diet, you know, sort of how, how dare you um, take away my choice. But the choice tends to be in terms of indulgence that hurts other people. And so it's kind of a common thread with a lot of the things going on during COVID. And um, I think while it may not be the easiest message to swallow in terms of eat less, it really is eat differently, you know, eat sustainably, eat healthfully and eat in a way that is nourishing and delicious and vital and, and get away from the toxic food that you're in, you know, you're consuming. There's a conversation going on right now between plant-based burgers and animal-based burgers. That is just very hard to understand to me because they're saying sort of beef is pure and plant-based burgers is junk and stuff. And I, I don't think people understand quite what cows eat. Um, literally cows eat all kinds of things and they would be surprised. They even eat candy. They even eat fish. Cows eat all kinds of things. And so including pesticides and, you know, the feed crops, the monocrops and all this. So when you compare what is in a plant-based burger versus what is in a um, beef-based burger, and in terms of health or in terms of environmental impacts, there's just no comparison which one wins the day. But in terms of processed food or, you know, things that you may not want to eat as a health nut, beef is not going to win that conversation. So anyway, um, I, I think... We need to think about what we're really eating and who's really telling us to eat that. I think there's a lot of analogs to the fossil fuel industry in terms of people's resistance to wanting to recycle or drive a more fuel efficient car. And in many ways, reducing your, your meat consumption and specifically beef is going to have an even bigger impact in some ways than um, recycling or driving a, a more fuel efficient car or driving less. And that kind of thing. So it's really quite powerful. And, you know, sure. and, and in, ter in terms of like the message that gets across to people, I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm still working on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, and actually, you know, uh, later, I do want to circle back with you about um, uh, your transition to sort of an alt ac, uh, you know, an alternative to academics kind of field, because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are themselves uh, graduate students um, and are, you know, thinking about what to do after they get their PhD. Uh, so I'm quite interested in that. But just to put a pin in that for a second, you know, coming back to that idea about um, plant-based burgers or plant-based meats, do you think that that is uh, sort of the road forward? I mean, I've had people on this podcast who think that um, alternative meat production, even lab-grown meat, uh, is uh, sort of the the best path toward not telling people that they can't do something, but find, but putting people onto a different course, but it's also still quite resource intensive if you're looking towards sustainability in a just food system, maybe. I think there's a, there, there's a lot of different things that you mentioned there. I think in terms of cellular 
we don't know the environmental impact yet. We don't have right. information. Well, because it's imaginary, so it can, <laughs> right. it can, be, so it can be whatever you want. It, and who knows? And we'll see. So it's hard to take a position on that. Um, and then there's an the ethical, what is it kind of thing. Um, in terms of all proteins, what I'm, what I will say about that is my position is not really um, one with an agenda on that because I'm seeing a lot of conversations where people are choosing their sides and they're saying, well, all protein is the solution. And other people are saying it is not the solution because it is dominating the narrative and it's, um, you know, coloring people, marginalized people particularly who've been advocating for change in this way and it's changing the narrative and it's adding the capital. And it's just, people are, are kind of looking at this in a black and white way. I don't think everybody, but kind of familiar voices. Um, and I think there's a lot of different spaces. One thing that's interesting that I, I want to look more into and have more data on is how much the alt protein movement so far has displaced meat consumption. And one interesting thing is that, for example, in the junk food industry or the fast food industry, excuse me, um, where they've tried these, these new plant-based burgers, um, the primary consumer of them was meat eaters. So to some degree, they're eating these burgers and that's working. But whether or not that's making them eat less of the meat burgers is unclear. And we just we don't have enough data on that. But so far, I've gotten conflicting reports on whether or not it's actually displacing it. Um, Interesting. Anything's possible. And I think there is a lot of funding in terms of the alt protein and there's there's more. And I think that can create some resentment. But I think if we have a better conversation about what it is we're trying to do and what is possible with these systemic changes that maybe we can bring people together, we're still going to have some disparities. But I think there is room for all options at the table, at least for now, as we figure out how to make systemic change in the food procurement area in terms of schools, in terms of uh, municipal agreements and climate emissions for food target emissions. There's just, just a lot of options, and I don't necessarily want to just cross the board brush one off. And so when I talk about regenerative or if I talk about all protein or if I talk about anything in terms of meat reduction, you know, whatever sort of gets us toward our goal is good. But we also have to focus just on the fact that we do not produce enough fruits and vegetables as a country to meet our own dietary guidelines. So maybe we could shift some subsidies, maybe we could shift some attention, shift some, you know, structural systemic change, support produce farmers so that that is not the case, that we are overproducing meat and dairy. We are, as a government, we are buying back millions of pounds of cheese and then forcing mm -hmm. it you know, into our systems um, and not producing enough fruits and vegetables. So something's got to change there, not the least of which, you know, how we're farming in general. Um, so just kind of a rambling answer there, but I just would just say that I'm, I think that we should talk about a lot of different things and nothing's off the table for me. Yeah, no, I think that um, sort of keeping, if you understand what values you're trying to promote and what the issues are, then you can be agnostic on tactics and see for what, you know, see what's working and keep your eyes uh, open for uh, not replicating the kind of unjust systems that you're trying to fight against in the first place. Yeah, um, I think so, there's a, there's some value to, sorry to interrupt you. I think there's no, a, no, go. Also, like I said, though, attending to the fruits and vegetables, but also thinking about what do we have now? You know, there's, for example, with school dishes, 
you can substitute a bean dish. A bean's got protein, a bean vegetables, got you know, all these different kinds of nutrients in it. And it's available now and it often reflects cultural diversity. So anyway, when we think about menus, I think it's important to think about what we have now in addition to what could be possible or what would appeal to people. Sure. Yeah. And and also, you know, looking at subsidies, I think that's also really important. When you're thinking about policy level institutional changes, uh, that has to that has to happen, right? Uh, I think that focusing solely on individual consumption choices, not only is it maybe a weaker lever than uh, than, it, than people might think it is, but uh, you know, it it's kind of missing these large structural overshadowing forces that you know keep mm-hmm. our food system. You know, as I often say, like the the industrial food system. Uh, you know, people talk about sustainability or resilience, like you were. Uh, that system is very, very resilient. I mean go ahead and try to change it. <laughs> it's it's very resilient to social pressure. Uh, you know, so people come up with, um, you know, organic as an alternative and mm-hmm. great. That in, organic can be incorporated into the system. We can return to stasis, which is the definition of resilience or local food. Good. We can incorporate that into the, you know, capitalist industrial sort of food system or, you know, take your pick, whatever the thing is, you, know, you want a special label for some things. You want a picture of a happy bird on some bags of coffee. Awesome. We, we can do that for you. So it's very resilient. It's not super sustainable <laughs> in yeah. the long term, but it's, it's really uh, quite difficult to budge. Yeah, I think that changing that will filter down. And I think people are afraid of losing their choice. And I think that changing the food system the way that we're talking about offers people more choice because right now, a lot of people don't have access to healthy, sustainable food. They can't go to right. the supermarket or if they do, there isn't really a lot of produce options there or healthy options or they can't afford it. You know, the fact, as you're saying, with subsidies that like a McDonald's burger might be the only affordable protein that somebody has available within a you know, two block radius or you know, um, something that's accessible to them is for a reason. It's not accidental. They're targeted that way. And it's because it's highly subsidized. So if we had at the policy level, completely different way of looking at food production and what we want it to do and who we want it to feed and how, then that will filter down to people being able to make the choices that they want to make. If they want to eat the healthy diet, then they'll be able to. They don't, they don't. Yeah. So a lot of the things that you've been writing are for this, uh, the Center for Biological Diversity. Can you talk a little bit about what that organization is? Sure. So the Center for Biological Diversity is a national nonprofit that is um, focused on conservation, particularly the promotion of biodiversity. Um, and I work in a program where I run the sustainable food campaigns. That's Yeah. And so, you know, you started to talk about this a little bit at the top of the show, but um, what has it been like for you to move from sort of an academic track to this uh, more sort of open kind of uh, position where, you know, if I look at all the things that you've published just recently, you're writing on lots of different aspects of these mm-hmm. issues. Um, how has that been, that sort of transition for you? Is Do you find that you're able to write about more different kinds of topics? Or on the other hand, I mean, maybe you feel like there's more pressure to to, be, <laughs> to produce things. You can hear my dogs agree with that question. <laughs> Um, I love dogs. So it's kind of a combination of things. I I have a personality where I am not able well to hold my opinions in. Um, I try to be rational, science-based, and and so on, particularly as an academic, obviously, highly so. But um, as a professor for many years, I would try to get students to think differently. So I taught 
the University of Notre Dame. I taught at Kansas State University. I taught at um, Indiana University. So I was teaching Midwestern students and trying to get them to think critically and balance all sides of an argument. So that was the goal. So it wasn't about getting my agenda across at all. And we had brilliant conversations. And, you know, really young people are the they're the future and they're the answer. They have so many opportunities. Maybe sometimes the older people who are more stubborn and set in their ways. Um, but just really good conversations. And as I transitioned out of academia, it opened up a space for me where I could bring the science-based values um, and critical thinking to kind of a more public scene, wider audience. Um, and, at, you know, as an advocate for a nonprofit, I get to talk about more things, but I also got to get to talk about less things because now I'm representing an organization as well. Um, and, you know, our values align, but there's plenty of things that I'd like to talk about that um, I don't necessarily try to publish all the time. For example, I'm not writing my journals and so forth. So, sure. yeah, um, it is great to work in the nonprofit world. I like it because people genuinely care about the planet and you sort of share that common value. That's your foundation. You start from there. And that's not necessarily true in the academic world where um, people are teaching different classes and they have different research projects and they're not all invested in the idea of um, improving the world. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, sort of mix, right? That on the one hand, now your job is to actively <laughs> uh, enact change, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the public sphere rather than to study something and, you know, produce something that maybe somebody else can use to, to enact change. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's also nice to have your job being to do that kind of first person research, not to mention teaching students. I mean, one of my, you know, like I like writing journal articles, but if you look at the total number of times it's been downloaded or read across all <laughs> platforms and you add that all up, and then you look at the number of students I have in a semester, it's pretty clear yeah. where, where where the leverage point is for getting people to hear your ideas. Yeah, there's a balance there, right? Because you you develop credibility and you develop your ideas and you develop your mind um, by doing the research portion of it and you get to be around the top minds and, and so on. And you're presenting in the field. You know, I presented international conferences just all over the world and met all kinds of people, top scholars, and grew that way. But absolutely, my favorite part is teaching for sure, because even just your average kid can have all kinds of insights that, you know, top minds don't have. So it kind of goes back and forth. And I certainly found myself challenged. I think they say when you're teaching, the teacher learns more than anybody. And I, I find that to be true as well. So it's just a kind of transition from a scenario where I'm in person, although I guess now I wouldn't be through COVID, but in person, no. engaged with people, um, thousands of students that I've taught, just all, I just adore all of them. And um, completely different scenario being creating campaigns, especially being online and having presentations that way, although there still is an element where I'm involved in, in research, just changed a little bit to the, the nuances of carbon sequestration and that kind of thing. It's kind of really... Um, people in the beef world are very intense about their about their science for environmental science and so forth and climate science. There's a lot there, and sure. more people studying it because it's very complex and it's it's interesting. But it, yeah, it's a different experience than than teaching, and I do miss that sometimes. Yeah, no, and and I mean, just to that point, you know, it's uh, it 
people think that there's a more contentious relationship with uh, farmers, even pretty large scale farmers, than there actually is. Uh, if you can point to things that are scientifically studied and will actually have an impact on what they're trying to do, you know, on, on their own goals and values. And once you can see that some of their goals and values actually line up uh, with ones that you might have, it, it's, mm -hmm. you, can, you can get a lot farther <laughs> in my experience than you think you can. I mean, yeah. I was lucky enough to get my PhD at Michigan state, which is a land grant school. So it's uh, explicitly sort of has those kinds of connections. And I had a lot of really good opportunities to do that, but to, um, but to the teaching, you know, uh, I think that food is a great uh, sort of way to get to kids because, or I say kids, uh, you know, 20 somethings, uh, because when, you know, you come through the food, when you come through the whole uh, educational system, one of the things you learn is that there's a lot of tricks, right? Professors are going to trap you, particularly in philosophy classes. Uh, if you're going to talk about ethical issues, the, people are very circumspect. They They don't know that they know anything. They're, you know, they aren't uh, sort of epistemically confident enough. Uh, sometimes to put themselves out there. Mm -hmm. But around food, everybody actually has very strongly held opinions. We ha they haven't learned yet that they should just be quiet and listen, right? Which I think is great. So one of the things that I do in my classes is have students talk about food and the way that it's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And I have them do that through a particular dish. Uh, so when I teach philosophy of food, they bring something to class and we all eat it and they talk about why this means something to them. And um, this last year through the pandemic, we had to do that remotely. So I had students record a video where they mm -hmm. talked about some food that was meaningful to them. And actually, it was great. I'm going to keep doing that, I think, in future semesters, in addition to the the actual food, because people would interview their parents or you know take you inside of their house to show them cooking something or take you to the store or their garden where they're procuring the ingredients, which added a whole nother level to it. Um, so to sort of replicate that for this podcast, I ask guests to have a recipe that they can talk about that has some that they find interesting or worth sharing or has some meaning to them. So can you talk about the recipe that you've provided for all of our listeners today? Oh, sure. That was such a good introduction. And I don't know that I can meet it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I do. People are so attached to their food and they have an emotional connection and a familiar yeah. connection and a cultural connection. And I think that's part of the resistance. And I think that food advocates, even food justice advocates, but especially environmental ones as well, I think people need to really understand that, that there's incredible amount of resistance, which they might also know, but the why, you know, and how personal it feels. And just really kind of understand that with empathy and try to understand where we're coming from that, you know, changes can be a good thing. You could have another dish at your table, make it even better. Yeah. Um, just the one I picked for some reason, I picked um, just sort of a smushed chickpea sandwich that I, is a comfort food. It's like a sourdough toast and smushed chickpeas and vinegar and mustard and mayo and all these kind of flavors and onions and garlic and things. Oh, lots of garlic. You need lots of garlic for your health. The reason I picked it though is I, it's not at all my favorite dish or anything like that. Sure. Um, but it makes me laugh because my brother will ask me about it at least once a year. What, what did you put in that thing again? What was it? How did you it? <laughs> and for some reason he loves it. And I think that makes me laugh because I think this has been gone five, seven years, something like that, where my brother would listen to me talk and he, you know, and I think I was a vegetarian since I was 19 or something like that. Um, and I would just sort of quietly model my behavior, my food choices and try not to be obnoxious or anything like that. But if he asked, I would explain why my decisions have led me to these cho choices and, or my, my feelings have led me to these choices. And 
he was so resistant, you know, he would, oh, that's nonsense. And he would argue with me and so on and so forth. But I would make him these dishes and he would love these dishes and <laughs> have this impact on him. And so now he's gone from being completely resistant. And all I did was make him sandwiches you know, and make a few points here and there to um, much more, I would say, almost fanatical than I am. Like, you know, he's extremely passionate and involved in, in making these dietary choices. And he's going around telling other people they should do so as well which I just find kind of charming because it's just kind of over these sandwiches that I would make them. So uh, of food to change your mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, that's the thing. I think a lot of people's concern or one part of their concern really is that they imagine the plate of food that they usually eat, which is like, you know, two thirds meat in some manner, some animal product. And then they imagine removing that from the plate and then they mm -hmm. look at what's left and they're like, well, that's terrible. <laughs> right? that, that seems like it seems like such a lack such a yeah, you know, yeah. such a loss yeah i i from my experience I, I i kind of didn't get that missing piece about dairy for a long time even though i even taught food right um until i i sort of made these connections with the dairy industry and my own journey as a, as a woman and motherhood and those kinds of things um and, but it was resistant to me until I happened to be traveling in Portland and I was at a conference and I had like plant-based butter and plant-based cheese. And by this point it had gotten, you know, it had grown so that it was actually phenomenal. It was so good. And I thought, well, this is a no brainer. Of course I'm going to change, you know? Um, and I think that as our ability to cook different dishes has improved as a culture and incorporate plant-based dishes and have this experience where people the more people have a positive experience with food, the more willing they are to think about food differently. And I find that to be true in personal individual cases and just sort of across the board, which is why it's so important to have gatherings where you bring a dish. It's so much more impactful than kind of giving people a lecture, you know, bring a dish that's really tasty or that is familiar to them, but slightly different. Bring it to your office parties, bring it, you know, to your conference and introduce people to food that is really delicious and vital. And I think people will have an easier time making different choices. Yeah, I think that's great. So if people want to uh, find some of your writings or um, see some of the other work that you're doing, what's the best place to point them to? Um, so our website is biologicaldiversity.org, but we are revamping our food website right now. And you can find it at earthfriendlydiet.com. And I am on Twitter, Jennifer Molidor. Um, and a few other websites, but you can begin there. And I think you'll find that I talk about food quite enough and I'm very happy to engage with everybody. So reach out to me and uh, we'll have a chat. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was my conversation with Jennifer Molador. Links are in the show notes, including a link to how you can find a lot of Jennifer's writings on a number of topics. If you'd like to subscribe, rate the show and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, you can drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. Thank you.